0: everybody. I'm Brian Norcross along with Luke Doris. This is podcast number eight of Hurricane Season 2021 and podcast number 64 in our series. Welcome to August, (laughs) Luke. Things are definitely heating up. Uh, Fred is out there and we're just talking about it's an interesting situation.
1: It is right on cue. We start getting into mid-August. Here we go. And it's almost a month to the day. Nice lull that we had since Elsa, which was almost a month to the day ago. And then, boom, here we go. Here's Fred. So and it's a,
0: and it's, it's it. actually a fairly unusual lull. I mean, we've had lulls like this in the past, obviously, but it's pretty uncommon not to have anything for a month at a time, especially in... Uh, in recent years. So anyway, we'll talk more about Fred here in just a second. So we promised you last week that we would be talking to Dr. Joseph Prospero, professor emeritus at the University of Miami and an expert on the Saharan dust, which we certainly talk about a lot. Well, Joe just happened to be under the weather last week. And we're going to schedule him again in the future, which is when the let you know that, because we still want to learn more about dust, and there is a lot to learn uh, about it, uh, as, as we all know. So anyway, that'll be coming up soon. But today, we're going to talk with Dr. Brian Glazer. Brian's an associate professor of oceanography at the University of Hawaii, and is a founder of a new company called Hohonu which is so interesting. The idea behind uh, HONU, as uh, we understand it, is to build a network of enough water level sensors that would allow us to know how fast the water was rising along the coast. For instance, if a hurricane were were coming along, kind of in real time. Imagine during Hurricane Irma, for example, if there had been sensors around downtown Miami and Miami Beach and um, other places along our coast, if we had been able to report in real time how high the water was and what the trend was and and so forth, we would have had uh, just so much more information uh, to convey because it was kind of uh, a mystery. And um, also Brian's day job, uh, so to speak, is to research microbes and how they develop and thrive in really extreme environments like volcanoes and super cold, dark places. So we'll learn all about that too. So uh, Brian's a really interesting uh, guy, and you're going to uh, like learning about this stuff. But Duke, uh, Luke, wouldn't it be just amazing if we had that data, kind of like we have wind data, to be able to say, you know, look at the water rising in downtown Miami compared to uh, Holliver or, or Fort Lauderdale or something, if we just knew that. Right now, we, <laughs> we just don't
1: know, right? We don't have
0: any yeah. idea. It-
1: it's all a mystery and how great would that be if right now this is happening at this place is something we can't even come close to doing with the water levels i mean we have a real broad brush uh, both on time scale and on just overall coverage so yeah it'd be tons of usefulness not in, not even just with storm surge. storm surge would be great Yay. uh but during king tide times and just uh, with sea level rise and just a high density network that spits out information uh often would be tremendously useful
0: yeah, just a persistent easterly wind will uh, raise the water. Anyway, we're going to learn all about this. So we talked to Brian Glazer here in just a few minutes. So we're recording this podcast on Wednesday, August 10th. To, uh, to, what is it? It's August 11th, 2021. Eleven. If you're listening at some point in the future for the latest weather, of course, tune in to Channel 10 in South Florida or local10.com. We stream all of the Local 10 newscasts there. And then you have the Max Tracker Hurricane app and the Local 10 Weather Authority app for current uh, information. And by the way, uh, yesterday for Fred, I did a Facebook Live on the Local 10 Facebook page. So you might want to get in touch with that. And that's a place you can send in your questions and uh, I'll answer them live uh, whenever something is. Uh, really pressing. And you can go to local10.com/hurricane to sign up for the newsletter from Brian Norcross it's called. Scroll down to the middle of the page under the picture of the local 10 weather team, enter your email and my Tropics Update will get emailed directly to you uh, each morning. Also, by the way, on local10.com slash hurricane, you can see a video version of this podcast if you're just list or are used to listening to it in audio. The video version is there, too, if in, for some reason you want to watch. All right, let's talk about what's going on out there now. First of all, Fred is so uh, interesting because as we so often say, that when a storm has not yet developed, is just developing, the forecasts are generally not very good. And this is an example in terms of the details. The general idea of the forecast has been fine. It's been going in the general direction. But since we have these giant mountains, 10,000-foot mountains in the Dominican Republic, and how the vortex related to the tropical storm interacts with that has so much to do with our weather downstream, uh, it's very interesting in the fact that today it's it's gone past Santo Domingo already this afternoon and it looks like it's going to be along the south side of the mountains where where the original forecast was for it to be more along the north side uh, of the mountain so it's uh, it's interesting
1: yeah and so tracking on the south side, the south side of the cone, which it's going to run it into a lot more land, right? So we're talking about a weaker storm, most likely, as it uh, if it's a storm at all at that point uh, for South Florida as far as what it means for us. Is that,
0: well, is that well remember, too, when it goes on the south side, so because the, the storm, the winds rotate counterclockwise, so the strong side of the tropical storm, which is normally the right side, is going to be jamming into the mountains <laughs> if, it, you know, if the center of the circulation goes on the south side, where if it goes on the north side, the center of the circulation is going over the water. So it's much less inhibited. In fact, a lot of times what happens is you see these systems ram into the mountains in the Dominican Republic, and they reform on the north side because you have just the general nature of the wind being faster over the ocean to the north of the island, and it gets things spinning on the north side. But with the storm on the south side, it's much more likely to dissipate or really get uh, disrupted, Seem to me, unless something uh, happens here that that kind of turns it to the right you know, in a big hurry so it doesn't Get involved, as you said, with all that land. First of all, you have the mountains in the Dominican Republic, then you have the mountains in Haiti. The peninsula there on the southern side of Haiti has uh, mountains on it as well, and then you have Cuba after that. So, I mean, there's a lot more in the way if this uh, system does not emerge on the north side of the Dominican Republic and Haiti.
1: Well, not even that, right? I mean, it's it's going to get disrupted to some degree, and then right. on top of that, the environment around it isn't great. So right, it, right. it it may start from nothing and ground zero and have to build itself back up from nothing, or there could be some semblance of a circulation left. We don't know what that will be, but even if it's got you know something to start with, it's got rough conditions. It's already had an impact on. It's why it hasn't really gone you know gangbusters yet. It's got dry air around it. There's some shear in the picture. So the idea of a big disruptive windstorm for South Florida at this point, not we're not thinking that we're, you know, typically with tropical storms, the biggest threats rain and flood. Right. So we're just probably going to be dealing with a lot of rain, potentially flooding, maybe some localized areas of gusty winds if this is on the upper end of the forecast, possibly. But is that a good way to think of this one, Brian?
0: Yeah, I think so. I don't think this will be a windstorm now. You know, people with boats do need to be aware, right? This is a thing where if you get a strong onshore flow, that affects how you tie up your boat and stuff like that. But it's it's basic stuff. It's no different than you get when, whenever you have a strong onshore winds. That's what we're thinking right now. And it may be just a rainstorm. It really may just be a gusty rainstorm that comes along and affects us for maybe a couple of days. I mean, this may not well, the- go away right away.
1: Yeah, Sunday's the wild card there. But then it, it's interesting what happens if it does, does go into the Gulf. Because the forecast from the Hurricane Center now is a higher end, 65-mile-per-hour tropical storm, headed not too far from Elsa's track a month ago, right. somewhere in the Florida Panhandle. It's This one's further west, but I know that we have you know FSU and students probably moving back in there. And there's that whole mess, so that's something that they'll have to watch. Um, but I, I also had a question for you, too. Because I took – I fielded several phone calls yesterday from viewers about what is a cyclone? Potential tropical cyclone six. Should we consider changing that to potential depression, potential tropical storm? How how can we get around that? Any thoughts?
0: Well, uh, yeah. I I hate that word cyclone because – you know, I don't know. It's something wrong with meteorologists. They want to use the same word to mean so many different things, and they expect people to sort out what they're talking about. You know, the fact that in parts of the world we use the word cyclone to actually mean a hurricane. Uh, you know, in other, you know, it actually it means a strong storm. Uh, technically, in our lexicon, a cyclone is just any kind of low pressure system. Is technically a cyclone. Right, so this is a potential tropical cyclone to try and slice it, dice it into some category. A tropical cyclone indeed has a technical, um, technical meaning that nobody, uh, normal, knows. So yeah, I don't like the the word cyclone to be used uh, in general. I don't like potential tropical cyclone. Uh, I mean, it's not that the folks at the Hurricane Center love it; (laughs) it's that. You know, they haven't come up with a, a better idea. I mean, to me, the idea is this is a potential tropical threat. One idea is to not try and label the system, but to label it as a threat. Um, I'm not 100% on that, but but that's a an alternative idea. But I, I totally agree with you that it doesn't come up enough that people are going to kind of learn it, like, like they've learned tropical depression to some degree. Uh, but uh, anyway, it is what what we have now. When they want to issue, when they feel the need to issue, which is a very commendable thing, uh, watches and warnings, uh, without having a center of circulation.
1: Oh, it's great that they can do that now because they yeah. can issue the watches and warnings. It's fantastic. But I get one of the phone calls that I received. They said, I couldn't pay attention to the rest of what you were saying because I was trying to figure out what a cyclone was
0: Yes, saying. exactly. I know. It. If you have a confusing headline, it, it uh, taints uh, what else you say. I, I completely agree with that. And, and, you know, we talked to Robbie Berg uh, a few weeks ago here, and they're examining every aspect of the way that the National Hurricane Center communicates, so I bet that that question will be in the mix at some point here uh, over the next few years. So we have another system out there in the Atlantic. Um, I don't think there's a whole lot to say about that. It's certainly positioned in a place that we watch closely. But there's quite a bit of uh, shear. The winds are strong out of the east across the tropical Atlantic, which is kind of uh, tearing it apart some. And they're forecast to stay reasonably strong uh, for the next few days as that thing heads toward the islands. Pretty quickly, but you know storms or systems in that area are something that we certainly watch very closely, and all over the southeast on the Hurricane Coast
1: especially once we get into August now we're watching the deep tropics we're into Cape Verde season where the storms have a better chance or disturbances have a better chance of developing into storms there's another thing that's in the mix and that is this two to three week pulse of uh, increased rising motion now last week the last few weeks part of the reason why we had such a lull in tropical activity was this MJO this pulse was over the Pacific and they had a lot of action out there we were quiet well now that pulse is moving over into our basin, into the Atlantic, and we would expect a general uptick in activity during that stretch.
0: So yeah, although they, the Pacific is still going strong, I mean the, the Pacific just cranked out Linda, which is going to be a, a hurricane. Um, and you know, I didn't look at the MJO today. Last time I looked at it, uh, it was forecast, indeed, like you said, to uh, enhance the Atlantic, especially in the second half of August, uh, but. With a fairly weak signal, not with a big strong signal like it has had over the the Pacific, but not that MJO forecasts are perfect by any means.
1: And it's on the very edge of my understanding, so find somebody <laughs> that knows a little bit more yeah. about it than I do. <laughs> I just. Well, look you at a chart but you, and you say described it is. right. It's
0: a pulse that goes around the the Earth, and when the when the MJO is over Africa and the Indian Ocean, it tends to enhance. The, what goes on in the Atlantic. So we can sort of track it. There are any number of ways to track it, and then all the various modeling communities have various ways of forecasting it, but it's certainly not absolute in terms of actually, especially if it's weak, being able to know exactly where it is, what it is, and then how what the forecast is gonna be, but generally you're right. The consensus has been that into August, especially the middle to the end of August, that the Atlantic atmosphere will be more conducive for uh, rising motion, which means more conducive for tropical activity. That's the, <laughs> that's the plan. OK, let's bring in Dr. Brian Glaser from the University of Hawaii. And we'll talk to him about microbes and storm surge. Hi, Brian. Good to meet you. Welcome to our podcast.
2: ALOHA. Thank you for having me.
0: So you're at the University of Miami at Manoa, which as I recall is a really beautiful campus there just north of the H1 freeway outside of Honolulu. Where did you come from and how did you get to Hawaii?
2: Yeah, so I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, lived up and down the East Coast most of my life, Um, did graduate work at the University of Delaware, and then I've been out here in Hawaii since 2004. Um, I arrived as a postdoctoral researcher with the NASA Astrobiology Institute. And within about a year and a half, two years, was really fortunate to be able to join the faculty and stay and fell in love with the place.
0: So did you go to Hawaii because you were going to paradise or did you go to Hawaii because the, uh, the, the opportunity was there?
2: both absolutely mm-hmm. both you know growing up on the east coast um i had been to hawaii once it certainly is a paradise and for someone who's interested in oceans and climate and science uh, it's a pretty ideal location uh and and on a you know initially a two-year fellowship uh, you know you can do anything for two years and try it out and so mm-hmm. that was a, was a great opportunity yeah sounds like a good deal um so we
1: often think of oceanography as having to do with waves and currents but you're interested in microbes essentially small bits of life Uh, Talk about what you're studying.
2: Yeah, so really, um, you know, in my mind, oceanography is all of it. The way that biology, physics, chemistry, climate all work together. And, uh, you know, my undergraduate degree was in biology. I had a marine science minor and a few credits away from a chemistry minor. That led me to think a little bit how chemistry and biology play together in in the oceans, which is a great place to think about these things, also watersheds. And so initially I was thinking a little bit about about seagrass ecosystems along the Delmarva coast, how uh, chemistry changes from Virginia to Delaware, how the seagrass ecosystems respond to that and how fish uh, respond to that. Um, That led me towards some finer scale chemistry questions about how really at the molecular level is what's happening there. And um, at that point, there's really no, um, no denying that the microbes rule the world. And so the interfaces between actually the chemistry of the environment and the microbe, the microbial engines that are producing our oxygen or creating food for fish that we ultimately may or may not eat, um, you know, that, that became pretty interesting and led us to some, some finer scale questions. Um, about half of my PhD dissertation was the chemistry of places and about half was kind of the, the microbiology of it, um, particularly in what we kind of describe as extreme environments so places that were very common on this planet three and a half billion years ago but not so much today so we go there to salt marshes and they smell sulfide and we find places like that or deep sea hydrothermal vents as well today my research has shifted a bit but I'm happy to go into kind of any any of those aspects
1: yeah, it's really fascinating. You know, my wife is a dietitian, and she talks a lot about the microbiome, what we have inside of our gut, which they call the second brain, which has all kinds of implications of your gut biome, uh, microbiome and how you feel and how you act. And that's just us. And then there's so much else that's out there in the world. I think about, you know, the largest uh, mammal in the world is uh, what the, not the whale shark, um, uh, the, the really big whale that eats just plankton. That's, uh, and it's just really fascinating and how diverse it could be um, all over the world. But uh, this might seem like a basic question, but what's a better description of microbes and say, a small bit of life? Are microbes different, say, near like a hydrothermal vent or a volcano than they are in the deep ocean?
2: Yeah, they've had a long time to perfect life on this planet. And so if you think, um, if you think about this in terms of the planet only being a year old, You know, humanity has only been around barely in time to pop the champagne right before New Year's Eve. And so the largest record of this planet and the way life and the planet have evolved together has been microbial. So we're very boring, right? You take away our oxygen and we die. We can't do anything else. There are microbes out there, different kinds of communities of microbes that can breathe something else or use something else for energy sources. And there are some microbes that can even even switch. So you take away their oxygen, they say, no oxygen, no problem. Move on to nitrate and breathe nitrate, or something else. To me, that's pretty fascinating to think about the diversity of how microbes work on this planet, and that co-evolution between planet and and biome. And you know, people who read about kind of exactly as you mentioned, you know, microbiomes in ourselves, we can think of the planet in the same way, with microbes really you know driving things that we think we may be in control of.
0: Wow. So one of the projects that I thought was so interesting that you were involved with was out on the Loewe Sea Mound, which is offshore of the big island east of Hawaii. I remember when I was there, them talking about there's going to be another Hawaiian island out there at some point. It's essentially an underwater volcano, right, which will, which will eventually grow into a Hawaiian island, even if it's not in our, our time. Do I have that right? And, and what was the project there?
2: Absolutely, yeah. So maybe in about 10,000 years or so, you can think about new real estate markets there. But um, Loihi is absolutely my favorite underwater volcano on the planet. Um, It's uh, located just southeast of the Big Island, so it's convenient to research and study, and it's fascinating. It's at about a 1,000-meter water depth, which in the Pacific Ocean is a naturally occurring oxygen minimum zone. So in the surface, you have photosynthesis, you have lots of oxygen, and at depth, you have different water masses mixing in the Pacific, and so you have a naturally occurring low oxygen zone that happens to be right about where the summit of Luhi is. So um, if, for anybody who's walked around in Volcanoes National Park or seen videos, Luhi is like that. It's a big, <clears throat> rocky, volcanic uh, mountain, no lava or anything like that erupting, but venting. So the the sulfur fumaroles that you see at Volcanoes National Park, there's an analog to that that you now have underwater. And because of the interactions between chemistry, how oxygen changes iron, right? You take a nail, put it in a bucket of water, come back a few days later, it's going to rust. So that process is happening naturally at places like our seafloor in these rocky outcrops. Um, The dynamics between that, how oxygen actually rusts iron, And whether or not that's an abiotic reaction that's all chemistry or some microbes can actually mediate that reaction and use that to gain energy, that's the beauty of Luihi. You have an entire ecosystem that is actually generating energy from that rusting process but it's the microbes actually ruling that process.
0: Wow, so let's talk about volcanoes and islands for just a minute because a lot of us in South Florida live on a sandbar and it's like a completely different thing. So is it as simple as there's a vent under the top layer of? of the Earth, the tectonic plates that that we all live on, that and the plates move along, and so different areas get affected by that vent, and the areas that used to be affected have kind of moved on, and that's why you have Hawaiian Islands or Canary Islands or other strings of islands like that. Is it that simple? Uh, yes and no.
2: And so you mentioned tectonic plates, and so under the sea we have a seventy thousand kilometer long volcano all around the planet that makes the seams of those plates. And so at those spreading centers, you're growing new seafloor and kind of moving out like a conveyor belt. At those thin spots where you're growing new seafloor, you have lots of bottom seawater exchange, and the magma chamber is actually heating that what used to be seawater and is now hydrothermal fluids. At places like Hawaii, it's similar, but a little bit geologically different. It's not located at one of those axis systems. It's a hot spot. It's also a thin spot in the crust here out in the middle of the Pacific. Um, but exactly, you can see through the Emperor Seamount chain how that Pacific plate has moved. Uh, the, the thin spot, the actual uh, hot spot, stays relatively stationary. And so the big island of Hawaii today is southeast of Oahu, which is uh, um, which is southeast of, say, Kauai and some of the Emperor Seamounts as that plate moves and
0: shifts around. So essentially, the Hawaiian islands have kind of migrated toward Asia with time, is that what's happening?
2: Exactly, and the really interesting geological side of that is that the big island is very big because it's the newest. So it is Mm -hmm. that expression of newest magma. Whereas if you go up into um, Papahanamoku and as islands erode, right, they get smaller and lower until they're eventually just coral atolls or even then seamounts again.
0: Wow. Luke?
1: Okay. So uh, does that mean that the, the big island is the newest? Do I have that right? Correct. Yes, okay, let's, let's trying to put it all together in my head. Let's talk about earthquakes. Uh, how do they come into play with both volcanoes and microbes?
2: Yeah, so as, as you could expect, whenever you have volcanic eruptions, you have plates moving around, and so earthquakes happen all the time. Uh, Globally, there's probably hundreds per day that we just don't have the technology to detect along that 70,000 kilometer long volcano that encircles our planet. At places like Luihi, we typically have, you know, maybe a magnitude 4.0 every year, or every two years, something like that. It may or may not be associated with an eruption. One of the largest implications, unless you're an organism actually living at those vents and your house is shaking and maybe falling over and changing the fluid around you, um, certainly one of the the largest implications for us um, are potential for tsunami. So if, say, for example, that southeast uh, ridge off of the Big Island were to slough off, that would cause a huge disturbance in the ocean, which could generate a tsunami wave, which would be devastating for places like Oahu.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, that's a strike slip fault or something. I think that's what it's called, where the, the, it builds up, the energy builds, 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 and then all of a sudden you get a big shift, right? And then uh, part of the land goes up and that pushes the, the water above it up. And then that generates some of the worst tsunamis. Is that right?
2: It, sure. In, in parts of the Western Pacific, that's exactly what's happening. In um, you know, the Pacific Northwest, it's a slightly different mechanism, but same, same kind of outcome. And so you know, folks in Seattle along the Oregon coast are all very, California are all very tuned into these as well.
1: Sure. Okay, so uh, back to the microbes. The most interesting microbes, they show up in extreme natural events. Is that right?
2: Yeah, to me, I think. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it's a window into the history of this planet, which is very interesting. And initially, you know, that coupled to, you know, the researchers at NASA say, "Wow, well, you know, if we could get you to Europa and try to explore whether or not there's life on other planets, um, what would we be doing differently than you're doing at Luigi? And the answer really is not much. And so if we could melt our way through seven kilometers of ice at Europa with a vehicle, that vehicle would be trying to do the same kinds of things that we do today at LUIHI, at hydrothermal vents all around the world. Um, that, that perspective of how does chemistry drive life and allow life and then how does the life then alter the environment around it is fairly universal.
0: So Europa is the moon of Jupiter? Jupiter, exactly. Jupiter. Okay, Just, <laughs> we don't right. usually talk about volcanoes and earthquakes and, uh, and microbes sure. uh, on sure. this podcast, it's so, <laughs> so um, it's great. All right, well, let's, uh, uh, it's fascinating, and I, I know there's so much more in that realm to talk about, but I want to talk to you about storm surge, which we do often talk about, and measuring water levels. How did you move from microbes to monitoring and measuring sea level with uh, your project?
2: Yeah. Great question. We, um, you know, I tell people all the time, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a programmer. I'm not a data scientist, uh, but I dabble. I can kind of dabble with each of those a little bit. And I've worked really closely with real engineers my entire career from diving in submersibles at hydrothermal vents to create new sensors and instruments to measure chemistry at hydrothermal vents or even salt marshes along the mid Atlantic. The fundamentals are kind of there. What I really enjoy doing is, Um, Less of going into the field, collecting a water sample, bringing it back to the lab, and more of pushing a button, collecting lots of data at lots of places. And so in 2014, um, I got frustrated that with um, a modest modest research grant, I wasn't able to afford the number of pressure sensors that I wanted to buy to instrument a 90-acre watershed here in Hawaii on Oahu. It's a beautiful site. It's a, a, an ancient Hawaiian fish pond, probably four to five hundred years old. Um, the Hawaiians were amazing at thinking about sustainability and coastal aquaculture, and so there's been a bit of a, um, a, a revolution to try to restore these areas through Hawaii. There are hundreds of these fish ponds feeding a population of maybe a million. You know, hundreds of years ago, today a lot of them are in disrepair, but there's been a renaissance. To restore these areas. We're currently working with about 15 different nonprofits who are engaged in both cultural resilience and environmental restoration in these sites. And so I was frustrated thinking, um, I want to measure water level at all of the gates in, in this wall that exchange seawater tidally and maybe bring in stream water. Couldn't afford to do it. And so This was 2014, the winter, and rather than traveling back to the East Coast over Christmas break, I dumped a bunch of parts on my coffee table, and within a couple of weeks I was able to generate a sensor that was then telemetering back data for very, very inexpensive, um, um, cost-effective amounts to measure water level and temperature and dissolved oxygen and just stick it into a Google Sheet at the time. And the light went off, and I said, "Well, if me, a non-engineer, can do this, then as soon as I start to enlist some of my engineering friends, we can really move the needle on affordable environmental monitoring." So that was the, um, you know, really the the birth of the idea and uh, we got some funding from National Science Foundation, we had some funding from NOAA, we uh, received some R&D funding from the Schmidt Family Foundation through Eric and Wendy Schmidt's uh, Schmidt Marine Technology Partners, and it's been great because we've been able to really blend that, um, those perspectives of electrical engineering, uh, computer science, and coastal oceanography and so, you know, I quit going to sea. I quit doing hydrothermal vent research mostly to stay at home with kids a little bit more, rather than go to sea three three weeks at a time, several times a year. Um, but it's been really exciting to still be able to apply those same perspectives of physics, chemistry, biology in the coastal zone, and bring some contemporary tools that didn't exist ten years ago.
0: All right. And Eric Schmidt, just to be clear, Eric and Wendy Schmidt, as in Google, Eric Schmidt, right. Exactly.
2: They are are wonderful philanthropists to the ocean science community. They operate a research vessel, which uh, um, actually I I sailed on. I was chief scientist for an expedition to Luihi. But then they also do a a variety of other different philanthropic um, uh, benefits to to the oceans and environment.
0: All right. So you make the sensor or maybe a few sensors for your fish pond. And um, now you're talking about this. A whole new system that uh, you have. Well so how, how does this become a system uh, you know beyond your Oahu fish pond? Yeah, great question.
2: And so you know I'm a professor, I have tenure, I do research projects, I write papers, I graduate students, I thought, oh, this is great. we can do this research project. But we started getting more and more demand for this. People would say, hey, I'd go give a talk at a national meeting, and four or five researchers would come over and say, hey, I need hyperlocal water level at my site, too. The nearest NOAA tide gauge just isn't close enough. Or I need to be telemetering uh, oxygen and temperature for another site. And so we got good enough at doing that as research projects that we were getting encouragement from NSF, from the University of Hawaii, from the Schmitz to think about a commercial pathway. Um, and ultimately, for me, the, the, um, the real motivator was that we can't sustain and deliver the, and meet the demand within just the walls of my lab. And so that led us to launch Hohonu. Hohonu is a private, uh, public-private partnership between the University of Hawaii and us. Um, we launched, we incorporated in 2019, and we have uh, received several... Um, contracts and grants in our first year, mostly with divisions of NOAA who absolutely appreciate the problem that we need to gap fill for hyperlocal water level between the existing tide gauge network, but also individual cities, counties, municipalities, other uh, environmental nonprofits, aquaculture communities. Um, So we we see a a really nice market to be able to provide ocean observing technologies to folks who otherwise wouldn't have had um, access to that kind of thing.
0: All right, so you talked about the sensors and to the extent that you can talk about it, so how do you get the data from the sensor that you measure the water level at the coast or wherever you're measuring it uh, back to some central operation that it ends up uh, in some kind of display or on a spreadsheet or however it is that that you actually uh, get and monitor the data?
2: Yeah, great question. So satellite communication is expensive, but it's doable. And it's expensive for two reasons, not just the expense of using the network, but also in power. So you need a large battery, you need a large solar panel. And today, in a lot of places, certainly around the US, you don't need satellite comms. Uh, You can use cellular or you can use other kinds of RF, radio frequency. It's almost like walkie talkies for computers. And so it really depends on the site. Most of what we're sending outside of Hawaii is all cellular telemetry. Um, so up and down the coast, if your cell phone works, we can deploy a, a tide gauge or some other kind of water quality sensor and tie that into the network where you're seeing almost real time, every six minutes or so, uh, data coming from those sensors. It all comes today through the cloud. We're currently using Amazon Web Services, um, but there's a variety of different kinds of solutions for that. So the beauty of what, we, um, what we're seeing, and we're, of course, not the only ones to do this, is, um, you know, launching on top of the momentum that's been built out of the smartphone industry. By having interconnected communities everywhere and the technologies that went into smartphone development allow the costs of components and electronics to come down to the point where now ocean sciences can benefit from that kind of tech development. So that's the hardware side of it and the telemetry side of it. Then the data ingestion and data science side of it. You know, data science and open scripting Python um, you know, com- computing lan- languages that at one time were only the domain of, uh, you know, computer scientists, it's very easy now to get started in some of that and so being able to kind of open up and diversify the folks who are looking at data science or hardware or environmental monitoring has really um, brought us ahead light years in the last five years.
1: So you mentioned the, using the backbone, essentially, of the cell network. Does that mean that the sensors have to be a certain distance from the coastline and range of a cell tower to operate?
2: Exactly. So right now we're concentrating on the coasts. Um, you know, I, 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 in a talk that I give, I show a picture of a NOAA dart buoy, which are the ones that really provide tsunami data for us or storm surge data for us. And I appreciate and I love that those are out there. At the same time, you know, nobody lives next to one. And so what we're seeing because of some of the intensifying problems from climate change, are folks are asking, why on this king tide event or why at this 40 knot storm, um, are we starting to see flooding when we didn't five years ago, 10 years ago, or three years ago? And so those are the kinds of questions that we're most interested in answering at Hohonu today, really giving that hyperlocal empirical data. What part of my road is flooded now, right? And then giving hyperlocal forecasts to say, we know, right, NOAA is very good at predicting when king tides will be coming. What we're doing is we're saying, well, we'll put a sensor there to show you exactly how high this particular king tide event is, and we're going to give you predictions for one, three, five, seven days into the future at that site that I'll that, um, you know, predict everything else available.
1: Yeah, it sounds tremendously useful. And, you know, Brian and I, we talk a lot about hurricanes, so on the storm surge side of things, they have tons of utility. You know, here in South Florida, uh, we rely on the tide sensor, that's at Virginia Key at the University of Miami Rasmus School. It's there near Key Biscayne. How does the data that the Hohonu system puts out compares to the established sensors like that one?
2: Yeah, great question. And because we started down this pathway as kind of an academic research question, you know, not motivated to start a company, we spent years in kind of that academic rigor side of thinking about sensor integrity, thinking about quality assurance, quality control for data flows. So we're getting about plus or minus 1.5 millimeter accuracy out of our sensor. That's measuring, it's totally customizable. Here in Hawaii, we're uploading one minute averages to be tsunami capable for tsunami detections. All of that data then comes into AWS, as I mentioned. And then rather, to be able to scale this, right, beyond kind of individual tide gauges here and there, the way that has been done in the past, we need to automate QAQC, quality assurance and quality control. And so we apply federal standards to every single sensor data feed as they come in. So that way me or a researcher or um, somebody else, a staff scientist, for example, doesn't have to look at every single sensor measurement in real time. We can get flagged um, for any kind of anomalous events.
1: Okay, just thinking about how these would be deployed and how many of them you would need. If you know how high the water level is at one place, let's say Biscayne Bay at Virginia Key, let's say it's two feet above normal. Does that mean that the whole bay is likely two feet high or in a body of water that big? I I don't know how familiar you are with Biscayne Bay, a fairly decent sized bay. uh, In a body of water that big, does the height vary significantly? Under what conditions?
2: Right. Absolutely. Right. Any boater in Biscayne Bay or along the ICW up and down, you know, the the Atlantic coast knows that water is moving and it's not moving uniformly up and down the coast. Uh, Wind driven tides are a huge problem operationally. And so when NOAA gives forecasts, for what tide heights might be between tide stations. Those are interpolations. They're very good interpolations, but they're just not good enough anymore. And so that's why we wanna deploy sensors and actually provide the empirical data to say, at your boat ramp or at your dock or at your, your substation for utility companies, for example, what exactly is the water level happening there rather than rely on the interpolations.
0: So is your vision that water levels would become like you know wind reports that you'd see them in real time in quasi real time, and it would tell you something about maybe the wind direction or the strength uh, in some places, and how much fresh water is flowing out of a river uh, compared to the storm surge flowing in. That you know you would just have much more granular data, like like we have multiple wind reports when a hurricane is coming, where right? we know the difference between the wind up and down the coast uh, by looking at these. But really, we have one tide gauge in South Florida that we can see in real time.
2: Absolutely, 100%. Two things over the last 10, 15 years, I think, have really driven um, you know, the ubiquity of wind sensors and wind data. One is the cost of electronics have come down. So today you can do one click or you can walk into a, 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 a store and buy an anemometer, put it on your roof, download an app and see exactly how fast the wind is blowing at your house. How cool is that? We can't do that for ocean sciences yet. That's the direction that we're moving in. I said two things, right? One is the cost of hardware allows that to happen. Also, I think the insurance industry, right? The insurance industry needs that that view in that lens of hyperlocal winds to say, what is the assessment from a current storm or a past storm or historical storm record? And then how can we project that in coming years? That hasn't been done yet for water level. And that's something that we're poised to do.
0: So I know that storm surge forecasting in general is really difficult because the water levels from a surge can be so drastically different in very close by places. And it drives the storm surge unit at the Hurricane Center, who do terrific science, kind of crazy, because it's very hard to communicate in that granular detail. But I would think that the Hohonu system would help understand how variable storm surge really is, right, just from a conceptual standpoint. I I don't think that people mostly understand that. What's, What's your thought?
2: Exactly. You know, there's have been some amazing advancements in storm surge modeling and forecasting in the last several years, mostly out of NOAA scientists, as far as I've been able to, to tell. Um, but again, it's that granularity question, right? Any honest modeler will tell you that the model output is limited by the empirical data going in. And what we're poised to do is actually improve the access to that empirical data. And so two examples that we've had in the last eight weeks or so, Uh, We've been very fortunate that these haven't been big storms, and so not too much damages. But when uh, both Tropical Storm Danny and Hurricane Elsa made landfall and kind of came and approached the South Carolina coastline and affected the coastlines there, there's only two NOAA tide gauges between Charleston, South Carolina, in Charleston Harbor, and one in Savannah, Georgia. And we have six deployed between Sullivan's Island, just outside of Charleston, and, and South um, toward, uh, toward Savannah. So for both Tropical Storm Danny, as it came ashore, and Tropical Storm Elsa, we're able to see not only at an individual location, which previously didn't have water level, how that water level changed at their site, but also then provide comparisons right up the coast from Edisto Beach to Sullivan's Island and Folly Beach, um, right along those coastlines. And so that's what we're really trying to, to do for communities.
1: Wow, I didn't realize that there had been such a data gap. That's pretty big and I'm thinking as I, you know, just imagine that in my mind you go down the coast a little bit, you get to Jacksonville, which would be, you know, with St. Johns River, that would be an incredible place to have a bunch of sensors with the river system there that's really highly variable to storm surge and various uh, water levels. So how are you planning to deploy your sensor system? Are you looking at local governments to step up or FEMA? I would think emergency managers would just love to know the details about water levels in their city or county during a storm.
2: Yeah, the, the easiest answer is just contact me. We have brought down the cost of deploying sensors dramatically and so by not needing a team of engineers to go out to a location and install, you know, $500,000 worth of equipment on a pier, we're able to box something up and ship it to end users who in many cases can just as install the equipment themselves. In other cases, we do have colleagues all around the world who are willing to help us out to get this network deployed. Um, I, I make a lot of mention to South Carolina, a friend, colleague and co-founder of Pahono, Nicole Elko. Um, has been kind of our key point for the South Atlantic region. We have a partnership with Socora, a a, a division of the Integrated Ocean Observing System, uh, with NOAA that's supporting a rollout of about 60 sensors from Florida to North Carolina. So we have a network of of collaborators, friends and colleagues uh, willing to help us out with sensor deployments. But yeah, anybody who, who wants or needs this kind of information, I just urge to contact me.
0: So just thinking out loud, is the system more important in areas like farther north up the east coast where you have these huge tide swings of five feet or more in some places, witness Hurricane Sandy, or in the south where we live so close to the water there because the tide doesn't really go up and down that much? Do you have a thought about where the Hohonu sensors would you know, be more useful?
2: Yeah, great question. And the answer is both, of course. We
0: have a colleague in
2: Massachusetts, so we've rolled sensors out to Barnstable Harbor. We're working with Massachusetts Maritime. um, Where the tidal swings are higher, Um, they're a little bit more used to tidal swings, but that doesn't mean the absolute highs are going to be any less damaging. And so high tide events in Boston are just as damaging as high tide events in downtown Miami or Charleston. Um, for and, and in your region, certainly, as you know, an extra 2 centimeters, 5 centimeters, 10 centimeters makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And so what I think that we're going to see in coming years as um, we see more and more accelerating, intensifying effects from climate change, that those individual 50-year records that, ha- that we have historical data for are still going to maintain importance, but not compared to the spatial variability that we're seeing. And that's what we're trying to tackle.
1: Uh, I think you may have answered this, Brian, uh, but is, is this something where if somebody lives on a dock, uh, you know, they've got a dock and they live on the water, could they buy a sensor like, a, you know, like they would a weather station, but buy one of your sensors and just monitor their water levels? Is that something that an individual could do?
2: Yeah, we've sent out a, a few to um, to some individuals. We're more in the business of kind of serving counties and municipalities, but I'm happy to chat with anybody and, and kind of identify specific locations that, that that might make sense for. You know, we're a young startup still, and so we don't have a customer service team, and working with individual homeowners might be a little bit more than we're ready to tackle right now, but there's certainly possibilities.
0: So I live in, in Miami Beach, which, as you may know, is one of the – first places, uh, in fact, my street was the first place in Miami Beach to be raised for sea level rise, uh, because of sea level rise problems, that the sewer system didn't work anymore, and every time it would rain hard, you'd end up with a big flood, and as a matter of fact, at high tide, you would have water coming up out of the sewers, uh, flooding the streets. So I would think that a a municipality like Miami Beach, for example, where they have, you know, they're spending a whole lot of money to mitigate against uh, Sea level rise, and higher tides in Biscayne Bay would be a perfect kind of place uh, for you. Is that who you're going after?
2: Um, it, exactly, and that's more of a built environment, you know, civil engineering kind of perspective. Uh, there's a lot of groups out there looking at these kinds of problems. That's something that we're poised to answer as well. Um, I tell people all the time, you know, uh, fundamentally, I'm still a professor, and I'm water agnostic and question agnostic. I want to know what the question is that's interesting, how can we solve it? If it's a different sensor, or if it's a different system, um, then that's what we'll deploy. We really have built this platform as kind of open architecture to be able to um, deliver data from the environmental monitoring sensors that are right for that question to folks who usually wouldn't otherwise have access to it.
0: Well, it's uh, it's really exciting. And Brian, before we let you go, uh, you brought up uh, in passing a phenomenon that I know is going on in Hawaii and has been for a while about the sort of cultural rebirth of of Hawaiian, the Hawaiian language and Hawaiian uh, traditions. And I don't know if you know anything about this, and it's really not terribly fair of me to ask, but you've been in Hawaii for so long and you're a scientist. But there was a hurricane, and I want to say 1861 sticks in my in my mind that. Uh, nobody knew about until they started translating the Hawaiian language uh, newspapers, and it, it hit Maui and was over by the Big Island, and it was, uh, I think, estimated in modern estimates of Category Three or something. Do you know anything about that and, and the process of of investigating, you know, via Hawaiian language translations of of uh, significant weather events in the past when the Hawaiian language dominated the. What is today the state of Hawaii?
2: Yeah, the Hawaiian culture is fascinating. Um, you know, Pre-contact, the Hawaiians were among the most literate uh, culture on the planet. Uh, Iolani Palace had electricity before the White House. Um, so there, there's just story upon story, and a friend and colleague of mine in the oceanography department at UH, Rosie Aligato, has been working hard to think about um, history and records from Hawaiian newspapers in the context of climate change. Um, I'm not personally familiar with the storm that you're, you're mentioning, but I have heard anecdotal stories about this, and there's just a wealth of knowledge from a history of indigenous knowledge. And it's not just in Hawaii. It's all over the planet, of course, um, but I think Hawaii is, is, is a shining beacon of uh, of bringing up some stories like that.
0: Yeah, it is. It's a fa- fascinating thing because people say, oh, Iniki was a freak, that Iniki was this Category 4 hurricane that, that hit uh, Kauai. Uh, right after Hurricane Andrew, actually, and so we paid a lot of attention to it. But anyway, the the storm from the 19th century proves it wasn't a freak. These things do happen. You do get very strong storms coming uh, toward Hawaii from the south. All right, Brian, thanks so much for being with us. Good luck with Hononu uh, and your network, and, and I hope we can get lots of them <laughs> uh, along in South Florida and along the hurricane coast. So it's great to talk to you. Thanks for being on.
2: Thanks so much. It was great chatting with you as well. Aloha.
0: Dr. Brian Glazer of the University of Hawaii at Manoa, the School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology. Fascinating. So, look, what a great idea to monitor water levels in real time, uh, like the wind. That was really interesting stuff.
1: And one of those things where you hear about it and you think, why hasn't this been done before? <laughs> exactly. uh, this is incredible. And, you know, as, at the beginning of the show, you were talking about Irma. And correct me if I'm wrong, but if I remember correctly, there was flooding in Brickell. And initially it had been attributed to storm surge and it wasn't until after some analysis had taken place that it was uh, revealed that that was indeed freshwater flooding and not storm surge and something like this network probably could have shed light on that in the real time and any other event. You could use this for any storm surge event and get really good data. And I also think too, uh, uh, I want to hear your thoughts on Irma and if, if that were right, but maybe you could see a surge coming, you know? Maybe if it's not a tidal wave, real big storm surge is coming in, I think he said data comes every six minutes, but you might be able to say, hey, the water's coming up, um, and give some people a little bit more lead time and some sort of a hyper-local sense, and I think that'd be just incredibly useful.
0: Well, especially on a river or something like that, you would certainly see it rise at at the mouth of the river before the surge goes up the river. And you know, one of the issues in a really big hurricane in South Florida are all the canals that go west, and the fact that that would take sur- storm surge well inland. And you know, we have evacuation zones related to that, and along the New River in Fort Lauderdale, and uh, and other rivers, Stranahan River, and other rivers uh, as well. So yeah, that would be interesting. And also, you know, just the water rise at the entrance to Biscayne Bay before the water rises in the bay. The water has to come in, right? It comes. It's not like a big all of a sudden thing. We don't have a, a sandbar out there in the same way that they have in some parts of the world, uh, which could also be uh, in the Keys, you, you can get this, by the way, from the south, is that you have a, the, the reef is so close in that that can really pick up the storm surge and it, it can become more of a kind of a wave kind of thing than a more gradual uh, rise like you get where the when the reef uh, edge of the reef is way way offshore it can be different the point is that yes you it would be fascinating in many ways not to mention you know it also measures freshwater if you were to deploy them on a, a river network where you could see how high the river was coming the other way you know the from the rain so going back to Irma yes so on Brickell Avenue the issue was the the rain the freshwater rain But the rain couldn't drain because of the storm surge. So uh, in, in sort of effect, the storm surge caused the problem. So this was the Miami Beach problem that I was talking about earlier in Sunset Harbor and other places uh, on the beach where the water level in Biscayne Bay would rise to the point that the sewer system wouldn't work. So when the rain came along and wanted to go out the sewer, the sewer was full of salt water because the water had come back in the other way. And sometimes the salt water actually came up into the street. So there was just no place for the fresh water to go. Well, that was essentially the situation that happened on Brickell. But over on Brickell Bay Drive, the, the, uh, right along the water, um, I don't know if that was storm surge. I wouldn't be surprised if that wasn't storm surge based on the pictures we saw of the salt water kind of coming over the, the uh, waterfront there, you know, so I, I think. But I'm, I'm not 100% sure about that, but you're right about the analysis uh, on uh, Brickell Avenue. So coming up next week, as we lead up to the 29th anniversary of Hurricane Andrew, we have a special guest. Actually I'm going to turn the podcast over to Luke. Luke.
1: Yeah, I've wanted to do this for a long time, everybody. Brian is going to be a guest on his own podcast next week. I'm going to interview him. Uh, Brian has led an incredibly fascinating career. He's a fascinating man. He is a, has an encyclopedic knowledge of hurricanes. There's so much to get in with him, and I guarantee you, you will enjoy it. It'll be uh, fascinating. And, of course, with the 29th anniversary of Hurricane Andrew, we'll spend a lot of time talking about that. So that'll come next week. And
0: uh, I encourage you to join in. It's going to be great. All right. All right. It's, uh, it's an honor, Luke. Really, it is. All right. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your Apple or Android app to get notified when the new podcast is online. And, of course, you can watch Twitter or Facebook as well, and we'll announce when there is uh, a new podcast. So for now, for Luke Doris, I'm Brian Norcross. Stay safe. Be well. Be sure you're vaccinated. And we'll see you next week.